This event recording is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. On the 13th of June, the School of Security Studies hosted its annual Understanding Complex Conflicts Research Conference, which showcased some of the research currently underway in the Department's War Studies and Defense Studies. As the centenary of the First World War is nearing a close, the first panel of this research conference was dedicated to the exploration of the complexities of the Great War. This panel covered topics such as military innovation and politics in the British Army, and the resolution and commemoration of the First World War. Let's listen in on this fascinating panel, starting with the introduction of our panelists by panel chair and director of the First World War Centenary Cultural Program, Jenny Waldman. So I'm delighted to be here and I'm delighted to introduce our first panel who have um, a number of different perspectives on, uh, on the First World War. We have here Dr. Amy Fox, lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College uh, since 2016 and before that a teaching fellow at Birmingham University. Her primary research interest uh, focuses on the British Army in the First World War and last year she published a book, Learning to Fight Military Innovation and Change in the British Army 1914 to 18. And she'll be talking to us about military innovation and the politics of command in the British Army in 1914 to 18. Dr. Helen McCartney in the middle is reader in Defence Studies, having joined the Defence Studies Department here at King's in 2000. She's part of a group looking at the commemorations um, of the First World War during this centenary. And um, I first came across Helen when she was advisor to the uh, AHRC-funded BBC World War I at Home project in, uh, in 2014. Uh, Helen's project, The British Soldier and Myths of the Great War, looks at the British soldier and how he's been represented both during the war and in its aftermath. Um, she also uh, touched on our programme again more recently when she wrote the contextual essay reporting now exhibition of Chloe Dumatthieu's um, photographs shot at dawn. She'll be talking to us about commemoration and, uh, and the First World War in Britain. And uh, furthest to my left, I have to look at them to make sure that, that you're on my left rather than my right, I'm useless at that. Further to my left, Professor Bill Philpott. Um, Bill joined the Department of War Studies in September of 2001 as a lecturer in military history and became Professor of History of Warfare in 2011. He's published extensively in the fields of First World War history and in 20th century Anglo-French relations. Most recently, he's published War of Attrition, Fighting the First World War. And he'll be talking to us about um, the complex security challenge of resolving the First World War. And uh, no better time to be doing that than now as we look toward uh, the whole period uh, in the centenary of centenary of armistice and uh, with the Tate Britain exhibition at the moment, Aftermath, which I would warmly recommend to all of you. So what we'll be doing over the next hour and a half is inviting each of our speakers to, um, to give their papers and then um, inviting questions uh, to each of them and indeed to all of them after that. So first of all, I'd like to invite Dr. Amy Fox. Thank you. Um, thank you, Jenny. Thank you, uh, Wim, for inviting me to speak at what is a, a really um, important conference, I think. Um, hopefully, you'll get something out of my paper. What I've tried to do here is kind of blend the historical um, analysis of the First World War with a few contemporary resonances. Um, so a little bit of a, a mismatch in a way. 
Um, in his lecture to the Royal United Services Institute in 2017, the now former Chief of the Defence Staff, Stuart Peach, reached back to the experience of armed forces during the First World War in order to highlight the importance of innovation to the military. I'm struck by just how much innovation there was 100 years ago, he remarked. When you read the detail of the Battle of Cambrai, it was very much about innovation on the battlefield and achieved a remarkable effect. The First World War also resonated in General Sinek Carter's lecture on dynamic security threats earlier this year. For Carter, then Chief of the General Staff and now the new Chief of the Defence Staff, the First World War gives us a great chance to actually think about what the next war might look like. The Army, he remarked, has a project underway that looks at mobilisation plans for the future force in the event of conflict on mainland Europe. It's called Project Henry Wilson, in reference to the British Army's Director of Military Operations in 1914, who was largely responsible for the mobilisation plan that led to the deployment of the British Expeditionary Force to the Western Front. Indeed, in many respects, the First World War and the experience of the British forces who fought in it is proving a rich source of lessons for the British military today, whether that's in terms of mass mobilisation, the reconstitution or regeneration of the force, sustainment, but also war fighting, not just in mass, but also at scale against a peer or near-peer enemy. For both Peach and Carter, the threats facing UK defence, whether they're state or non-state based, require certain interventions and responses, and this isn't just an increase in spending, nuclear or capabilities, although I'm sure that would be incredibly welcome. Many of these responses are intrinsic to the military organisation itself. A higher appetite for risk-taking, for example, an increased premium placed on adaptability, investment in junior leaders, and a command philosophy that enables and encourages initiative. But fundamentally, there's a simple need, and that's to innovate. For Peach, innovation should not be a process or a slogan. It's the way we respond to the new threat environment. If we do not change with the threats that we face, we risk being overmatched. Now, the need for militaries to innovate is nothing new, of course, whether we look in time of peace or time of war, whether we look at today or 100 years ago. The need to innovate to retain a competitive advantage or military edge is paramount. And much of this need, I think, relies on a culture that provides for, that enables innovation. And it's perhaps no surprise then that at the heart of the MOD's 2016 Defence Innovation Initiative, is the vision of empowering, and I quote, a culture that is innovative by instinct. Now, I'd put to you that for the army of the First World War, innovative by instinct is actually a fundamental tenet of its organisational culture, and that in many respects, it's a military organisation capable of proactive innovation and change. Now, of course, my contention doesn't necessarily chime with the popular perception of the army of the First World War, it's not quite in line with our Blackadder Goes Forth view of the army. But even today, in the last year of the centenary, it's still an organisation that's largely viewed as conservative, as out of touch, led by unthinking, callous generals. It's certainly not viewed as an agile organisation, either conceptually or physically, nor is it viewed as particularly flexible or creative. Even contemporary commentators at the time held the same view. 
David Lloyd George, Britain's wartime prime minister, believed that there was a rigidity, a restrictiveness about the methods employed by the army, which allowed no play for initiative, imagination and inventiveness. Lloyd George's opinions, I think, not only just on senior command, but also on the British Army's officer corps more broadly, have had an enduring and something of a distorting effect, actually, on how we view learning and innovation in the army of the time. So what I want to do with, with the time uh, given to me is, is challenge this view, like any good historian, right? Instead, I want to highlight the role that both senior commanders, but also those at mid and junior levels, played in creating the necessary conditions for innovation to occur. But I also want to show as a corollary how those individuals work together in order to stimulate, facilitate, and coordinate innovation across the organization. And note here that I'm referring to the organization, not a particular regiment or branch or formation, because to my mind, innovation, if it's to be done effectively, has to be an institution-wide undertaking underpinned and enabled by an effective organisational culture. And that's really kind of the, the first substantive point I want to speak to, this issue of culture. Because I don't think you can talk about command in the military without talking about the organisational culture within which it sits. In his contribution to the Wavell Room, for those of you who haven't heard of it, is a British <coughs> professional military education blog. In his contribution on speaking truth to power, Lieutenant General Sir John Kisley use the example of Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, the Commander-in-Chief of the British Forces in the First World War. He uses this example of him turning white with anger at being questioned by two staff officers. And for Kisley, what's interesting is that Haig's reaction tells us more about organisational culture than it does about the Field Marshal himself. The implication, then, is a culture that didn't brook criticism, that was inflexible, that was intolerant. Other modern commentators and scholars have supported this view, suggesting that the army's bureaucratic framework and the culture of the pre-war period actually militated against effective learning. Another suggesting simply that the army did not encourage open discussion or reassessment. Now time, unfortunately, prevents me from detailing counter-arguments in full, but I'd suggest the opposite, actually and that from my research into the army, I found that it has a pretty flexible culture, which was necessarily shaped by a number of factors, such as British national identity and the geostrategic realities that Britain faced on the eve of the First World War. The army's culture was one that emphasized pragmatism, that prioritized individual action, and really demonstrated a preference for principles rather than prescription. And that actually, rather than acting as a break on innovation, this culture provides the army with the ability to adequately examine and promote new ideas and solutions. And this culture is propagated through a number of means. You have the regimental tradition for bad or good, um, training regimes, but perhaps more importantly, the army's capstone doctrine of the time, which sought to empower the individual, the subordinate, as well as encouraging individual initiative. Now, there are some scholars who question the continuing relevance of culture, in wartime. But for me, I think it's clear that the Army's culture, at least, set the preconditions for its ability to innovate. But its focus on the individual and its incredibly personalized nature was, in many respects, a double edged sword. Because such a culture facilitated experimentation and diversity, but with that comes a plethora of different methods and approach, 
which militates really against the uniformity that one might want or desire in a military organization. But if we boil this down to a simple truth, is that this culture just prioritized individuals and that individuals often learned in ways that made best sense to them. And this is no more evident than in um, the British Army's officer corps, who were known to flout higher directives and orders of immediate superiors. And in many respects, these individuals had the ability to influence institutional behavior to a considerable extent. What I want to sort of do now is, is show how this culture actually sort of played out in practice, as it were, and how it's enabled for the creation of an environment for commanders in particular to facilitate innovation. For me, innovation can only really occur in an organization that's actually rich in connections and relationships, and how those innovations are identified and how they're diffused is dependent on the size, the extent, and also the degree of coupling of those various relationships. For me, the Army's culture underpins the development of a network of individuals that are working together to coordinate and stimulate innovation. By using their own personal, but also their professional connections, they build up effective working relationships with others in different parts of the organization. So in a way, this is bringing a little bit of kind of social network theory into the study of the Army in this conflict. So for me, there are sort of three particular roles that one can discern in this network. And this reaches from the men in the field all the way up to those at the top of the army. So first off, you have kind of experts, and I use this term quite loosely rather than with the baggage of the Victorian and Edwardian period. These experts who have a certain knowledge, experience, or idea that sets them apart from their colleagues. And these individuals um, in a First World War context are responsible for the development of platoon tactics, military mining, inland water transport, and artillery survey techniques, to name just a few. But what's interesting is that there's no one type. These experts come from a diverse range of backgrounds. Some are young, university students. Some are middle-aged. Some are scientists, academics. Some are career soldiers. Some are other ranks, non-commissioned officers. And you get some who are brigadier in rank. Yet despite these differences, there are similarities in that and at least in the case studies I've looked at, they're quite marginal characters. So even though they might hold significant rank and not in the heart of the organization, some actually straddle the very uneasy boundaries between the military and the civilian worlds as well. But what binds them all together is that their expertise gives them initial legitimacy, which proves really important in attracting the attention of the second role in this network, which is that of the broker. So the broker is there to kind of generate support for that initial idea. So someone comes to this individual with a good idea, and it's for them to actually then further enhance the legitimacy and credibility of that idea. So if we were to think about it in project management terms, we might see them as project sponsors. And these individuals are responsible for connecting disparate and discrete groups together. So in many ways, they're boosting the army's cognitive diversity by bringing different people into conversation. And they act as kind of almost bridges over which ideas and innovations can flow. But I think it's important we don't just see them as, as gatekeepers um, or intermediaries, because they often had significant resources in their own right, such as their own influence, their own political capital. And they wielded those resources in order to affect this process. Importantly, they had the ear of the leaders, so our patron figures, if you will. And this is the final role in this network. So these are your kind of institutional elites, often holding general officer rank, whose prestige and support 
were vital preconditions for these kind of ideas to succeed. Again, in project management terms, we might see them as our project champions, fostering innovation by creating a coherent vision and encouraging purposive action amongst their subordinates. And I think in many ways, for those of you who are familiar with some of the innovation literature, it kind of reflects a lot of Stephen Rosen's work on early ideas around the visionary senior leader who creates promotion pathways for their subordinates. But what these high-ranking figures do, I think, is use their legitimacy, use their position in the organisation in order to protect these brokers and also these experts, giving them the time, the space, the environment to actually go away and solve and address challenges. Who are these people in a First World War context? So I appreciate some of you might know quite a bit about the First World War, some of you maybe not. Um, the commander of the British Third Army formation, an individual called Edmund Allenby, who goes on to significant fame in the Palestine campaign, actually oversaw, oversaw the establishment of the first senior officers school on the Western Front, which encouraged officers to ventilate their views in an almost insubordinate way. Um, these views were actually pushed up to Allenby as commander, as it was felt, and I quote, that it was no bad thing for higher command to realise what the front line thought of them. Another example we might highlight is Henry Rawlinson, who's the commander of the British Fourth Army. As well as actively patronising artillery survey techniques and developments, after the Battle of the Somme in 1916, him and his chief of staff actually played a really important role in circulating tactical improvements among the force. Subordinates were encouraged to speak truth to power, with one officer actually praising, and I quote, the obvious desire to get at the real truth and a wish to obtain the ideas of commanders. All this is fine in, in principle, but I think fundamentally without that supportive culture encompassing both structure and leadership as a wraparound, ideas and knowledge will remain fixed or undeveloped. Individual unstructured initiatives will remain just that. The French general Philippe Pétain had remarked in 1915 that the war had engendered a lack of curiosity and mental laziness in combatants, that new equipment, new ideas were only known by those who developed them, that what was actually learned was little shared across the force or with those who didn't take part. As Jonathan Krauss of this parish has remarked, military command in many ways is required to act like a pump, intelligently circulating good ideas and encouraging the replacement of less than good ideas, let's not call them bad ones. The British Army, I think, was similarly reliant on this kind of command structure, a structure that understood, that acted on the ideas of men in the field, an effective training structure in order to spread those ideas across the organisation, but also a network of individuals that are empowered to promote them. And I think it's through this network or this networked way of looking at innovation that we can see how a culture that's innovative by instinct actually pervaded the entire army. Now, I appreciate that what I've put forward there promotes a rather unorthodox, somewhat positive view of the army's experience of the First World War, and that certainly may be so. Um, but what I see with my research into the army is that innovation was very much everyone's business, whether you look at it at the local level, whether you look at it horizontally or more vertically. The army, I think, reveals a willingness to interact with and reach out to those individuals with good ideas and recognised expertise, whether they were civilians or soldiers, whether they were junior or senior. In short, then, it's the ideas that had value, 
not the rank. And I think there's, there's probably much to be said here um, about the British Army's use of civilian expertise and the role that High Command actually played in actively reaching out for that. Um, and I don't think we should dismiss the Army's own agency and proactivity in this process. It wasn't a conservative consumer, per se, but often a co-creator of knowledge and expertise. And I think we can look at the Army's voracious appetite for men of business, the science of statistics, for example, to show how it's actively reaching out for new methods and effectively, or essentially, new ways of trying to shorten the war itself. So while we can call the Army's culture innovative by instinct, it was far from perfect. You know, we're talking about a complex hierarchical organisation. There are always going to be pockets of scepticism. And I think this is natural because change is often perceived as being quite threatening, particularly for those who feel that their role or their prestige or their very well-being is, is somehow at risk. So friction, stickiness, these are just part and parcel of the innovation process. And rather than ignoring these and seeing these as you know, things that we don't really need to consider, they should be regarded as fundamental interrelated factors um, in the process, not as distinct or independent or problematic. One officer in 1919 charitably remarked that jealousies, difference in opinion, want of coordination, want of an exact system laid down on paper would generally, I think, have been fatal amongst other nations, but it worked with us on the whole because every officer was doing his best to help the work along. So to try and pull this together. So to go back to Lloyd George's comment, um, in that far from allowing no play for initiative, imagination or inventiveness, I think the army is, is absolutely capable of facilitating and promoting innovation. And this isn't limited to a particular branch. Unfortunately, time's precluded me from giving you lots of detail on these case studies, but we see this in different <coughs> operational theatres, in the artillery, engineers, infantry. And I think in many respects, this is spurred on by the victory imperative, but it's also coupled with the threat of possible defeat as well, which means that innovation is very much everyone's business. I think where innovation is concerned more broadly, and this has resonance, I think, with the armed forces today, is that we need to reconcile ourselves to the fact that it is an inherently unpredictable and messy process, particularly when you're reinserting human behaviour and agency back into the heart of this conversation. It's also not something that can be forced or injected into an organisation. All these calls for organisations to be more innovative, I think, are misguided and actually overlook its inherently problematic nature. And we need to almost reconcile ourselves to the fact that innovation is a process. It might be a slogan as well, but it's certainly a process. It's one that relies on an interplay between culture, people, and risk, particularly the risk of failure. As a result, it's not easy, and it's certainly not cheap. We see innovation bandied around a lot in austere times, but changing culture and changing how people view or think about change is actually both time and resource intensive. I think we also fetishize and commodify concepts like learning and innovation. We present them as these little neat packages that move from point A to point B in a seamless fashion. And I think this is dangerous because it overlooks the challenges and reality of failure, of trying to identify good ideas over bad ones. Um, and of the need to negotiate inherent frictions, such as trust, relevance, and motivation, or of course, a lack thereof. 
So for me, command actually plays a really vital role in mitigating some of these challenges, as well as both empowering and promoting a learning environment. The management theorist Peter Seng remarks that leaders are responsible for learning. Commanders, even in contemporary forces, I think need to be comfortable listening to dissenters, promoting self-reliance and where necessary, actually subverting the chain of command itself. And I think in many ways this ties into the need to be open to receiving what Chilcott has referred to as reasonable challenge, as well as actually offering that as well. I think there are numerous examples in the British Army in the First World War of commanders at all levels driving innovation and taking considerable risk. But there are also those who worry about their job, their reputation, their prestige, about the number of casualties they might sustain. For the Army of today, there are some officers who highlight a tension within their service that reasonable challenge, while necessary, is actually incompatible with a command culture that prioritises or places job security as paramount. And I think command has a responsibility to create an environment, whether that's in the barrack room or whether it's on the battlefield, for innovation, creativity, problem solving and learning to take place. And I think in short, to create a culture that is innovative by instinct, we need to, I suppose, put in capabilities and new kit to one side, that addressing risk, managing failure, challenging groupthink, and speaking truth to power, without doing all of these, armies will be woefully underprepared to fight the next fight. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. challenging our preconceptions about the structure of bureaucracy in the Army of the First World War. Please hold your thoughts and, uh, and questions on that and we will move on to uh, Professor Bill Philpott. Thank, Thank you very much. Uh, great. Thank you. Uh, First, I'll kind of preface what I've got to say with a, a brief comment. When I agreed to talk on this topic, I didn't realise I'd only have 20 minutes. I will do my best uh, to summarise what is a very complex series of events. Uh, and uh, try and understand uh, partly what the challenges were faced at the end of the First World War, uh, some of the approaches that were available uh, and the problematic nature of these, and to what extent these might uh, be considered to be successful or not. And of course the Great War conventionally ends in November uh, 1918. But I would stress that the security challenges that we see are not uh, or at least only partly a consequence of the timing and the nature of the ending of the war. So the events of 98 are important, but there are bigger uh, issues we have to understand as well. Uh, I think they're summed up neatly uh, by David Lloyd George, in fact, who we've had mentioned already. He gave an address to Parliament in December 1917, summing up how he felt the war was going at that point and how it had gone in 1917. And he tried to identify some events that he thought would be significant 100 years later. And uh, in this, he was quite percipient, I think. Uh, he suggested that the Russian Revolution was very important. He noted the advent of the United States into world politics. Uh, America joined the war earlier that year. He noted also the setting up of something called the Versailles Supreme War Council, which was an institution for managing the Allied uh, war effort and strategy more efficiently uh, drawing on uh, representatives from Britain, France, Italy and the United States. Uh, something uh, that I think is generally overlooked as a precursor to modern uh, interstate cooperation organisations, 
but actually Lloyd George, Lloyd George himself described it as the machine of the League of Nations that in itself is going to be the beginning of something which will have a greater effect in international relations than anyone can imagine at this particular moment. He also identified the emancipation of the Arabs from the domination of Turkey uh, as a great positive of this year. Of course, the British had uh, backed the Arab revolt, particularly associated with the actions of T. Lawrence. Uh, in terms of military events, uh, to draw some positives from what it was a difficult year on the battlefield, he identified the captures of Baghdad and Jerusalem as the key events of the war that year. Now, within a year from this speech, the war would be over. But one has to then wonder whether actually the war had been won at that point. Certainly, two wars were resolved with armistices, armistices that were signed uh, in October and November 1918. One was the war against Turkey in the Middle East. Uh, this was in some ways an old-fashioned imperial war that actually had started in November 1914. And the other was the uh, more traditional balance of power war uh, fought against Germany and Austria-Hungary, uh, principally, uh, which began in August 1914, the conventional First World War uh, that came to an end with the final armistice with Germany uh, on the 11th of November 1918. But war had not ended. Another war, a very important war, had broken out in 1918 as a result of the events of 1917, and that was the war uh, against international Bolshevism, uh, and this would have to be fought out in the years following the First World War. It was a civil war in some ways in Russia, but it was a war with international dimensions and implications. There were also some specific challenges that actually predated the war, uh, or led to its outbreak back in 1914. There were some challenges that were actually a consequence of uh, how the war had developed, how it had been conducted. Some other challenges emerged from the collapse of states and empires during or at the end of the war. We have domestic and international challenges. We have international uh, political, and social, political and social challenges. We have local, we have regional, and we have global security challenges, all of which have to be addressed. The, the longest standing challenge, perhaps, is that of, of pre-war European security. This was why war breaks out in 1940 in the first place. I think this uh, contemporary uh, sketch gives an indication of the, of the problematic nature of Europe before 1914. At uh, a risk of broad oversimplification, that's all I can do in the time I've got, this is a war that breaks out over great powers' issues of state and their security interests. For example, for Austria-Hungary, uh, perhaps for Russia, there are issues of nationality and domestic security in Eastern Europe. For France, it's an issue of security against Germany. Uh, this will be the second invasion of France by Germany in living memory. For Germany, it's a question of security against France and her Russian ally, the fact that Germany felt uh, surrounded uh, and uh, threatened on both sides. For British security, it was a question of the balance of power on the continent of Europe, and more precisely, the issue of Belgian neutrality, which was its compromising of which was a direct threat to British maritime security. And the other great powers that would then join the war had similar agendas. Turkey, joining the war in November 1914, was reasserting its nationality. Italy, that joined in in 
1915 was essentially fighting its final war of unification, uh, finishing off a process that had begun in the middle of the 19th century. These are the issues that start the war, uh, much dis disputed even now. Uh, these are the issues that spread the war between 1914 and 1916. These issues remain to be resolved when the war comes to an end. And these are essentially issues of what we would call old diplomacy. They were issues of honouring alliances and settling treaties. And they, as an example, the Treaty of London of April 1915 was signed with Italy and promised the Italians uh, irredenta uh, Italian territories under Austrian rule as their reward for joining uh, the Allied side in the war. The problem is, even while these treaties were being signed, the war was changing. Really, by the end of 1914, and certainly during the course of 1915, what had begun as a statesman's war was becoming a popular, uh, a popular, a popular patriotic war, uh, rather to a greater or less extent, depending on the state you looked at. But this was a phenomenon uh, that characterised the war as it develops uh, in its first two years. Also, the nature of the war becomes apparent in 1915. It's a war of uh, mass mobilisation with associated shifts in political and social relationships in all the belligerents as a result of the strains of this process of mobilisation. Summarising briefly, you see the rise of uh, the power of labour and organised labour through trade unions. You see a changing role of the state. Uh, starts to challenge the role of private enterprise in conducting the war, and you see increasing uh, state interference in and power over the lives of citizens. You also, as the war goes on, see a realignment of domestic politics, essentially uh, towards the political extremes, whether they be pro-war on the right or anti-war on the left. Then the belligerents pass through a very difficult year, a year of attrition in 1916, uh, the year of the Battle of the Somme and Verdun, in the west, but also of the Isonzo battles in Italy, the Brusolov offensive on the Eastern Front. The war is getting into its stride, it's showing its true nature, nature of uh, mass warfare, huge casualties, increasing stray, strain on the individuals and the collectives of the states that are waging war. And then in 1917, you have a year of increasing disenchantment with the conflict. Uh, William Mulligan, uh, suggested that this would result in a presentation of the moral purpose of the war in which the continuation of the struggle for a particular vision of future peace was the basis for the remobilization of civilian populations and armies. So 1917 is a key year. This is the year that Lloyd George is reflecting on. It's a year where in some ways the war that had been fought between 1914 and 1916 is fundamentally going to change and shift its nature. Also, it's a year in which the war is still expanding. America enters the war as an associated power and brings a very different, a more populist, a more idealistic uh, agenda, a security agenda, the Wilsonian agenda associated with President Woodrow Wilson uh, into the mix. But other people have other ideas in 1917 that are gonna complicate things. You get the idea of an international socialist peace promoted at the Stockholm Conference uh, in the summer, uh, a peace without annexations and indemnities, exactly challenging the capitalist imperialistic principles of the states that had gone to war in 1914. And it's popular, it's adopted as 
uh, by the uh, Kerensky government after the first uh, revolution in Russia in 1917, uh, the German uh, Democratic parties in the Reichstag passed a peace resolution supporting this sort of peace against the will of the German high command emperor in Germany in summer 1917 as well. So you see populism starting to challenge authority structures as the war develops. And then at the end of the war, sorry, the war, at the end of the year, you get a monumental event, of course, the Second Russian Revolution, uh, the Bolshevik coup with their uh, slogan, peace, bread and land. Peace, ending the war, was the fundamental objective of the Bolsheviks. Uh, but their method of doing so by armed conflict would challenge the social and political structures of all uh, European states. And then, in 1918, very quickly, the war suddenly comes to an end. Uh, brief chronology up there of what happens, but essentially between August and November, all four states in the Central Powers Alliance are defeated uh, one by one at the same time, uh, and suddenly uh, you have a situation where there has been a victory, but before American military intervention has really become uh, decisive, as Wilson had anticipated. Most people were expecting the war to carry on into 1919, even 1920, when a, a military event, which I can't go into, brought the war to a rapid end. Now, the armistice terms that resulted reflected uh, essentially immediate security concerns of the states that had uh, defeated their adversaries. For example, the armistice for Germany uh, called for the liberation of French and Belgian territory, an army of occupation in the Rhineland, uh, the elimination of the threat from the German high seas fleet required uh, by uh, the maritime British uh, Empire. These armistice terms wouldn't give you security in the long term. They were not the basis for a lasting peace. Uh, Lloyd George, in December 1916, when he became uh, Prime Minister, had argued that the war would be fought until the Allies got uh, restitution, reparation, and guarantee against repetition. Uh, but that's uh, a soundbite. It doesn't actually give you much of a basis on which to negotiate uh, a practical settlement. Uh, People have been saying the same thing about a certain agreement signed by uh, Donald Trump and uh, Kim yesterday. But we'll see where it goes, as it were. So this is the way the war developed. Which was the key year, we don't know, but all of them certainly set challenges for the post-war uh, security settlement. Also, there are contested ideas of peace. Uh, Wilson intervenes in 1917, and he claims to want to secure peace without victory which will be unacceptable, of course, to world leaders who are fighting this war for national interest. And also, of course, to many of their people who are patriots at heart and believe in what the war is being fought for. And that they feel they need to justify the efforts and sacrifices already made. Which is why the International Socialist Peace, although popular on the left, was not going to gain a foothold uh, throughout societies. Unfortunately, with the victory that comes about in 1918, the Allies have secured victory, but without peace. Peace still has to be negotiated thereafter. And this is going to take place against a background, not of, not of quiet calm, but of continued conflict. Although conventionally World War I ends in 1918, in fact, World War I ends in 1923, when the final peace settlement 
is signed. There's a longer period of peacemaking, or an equally long period of peacemaking, as there is of war making. And the question is, who's going to make peace? How is it going to be made? How is peace going to be enforced and uh, sustained? I like this picture. It shows the Hungarian peace penitentiaries actually being escorted in to sign the Treaty of Trianon in uh, 1920. And note they're marching or, or uh, walking past a French guard of honour, in theory, or effectively a demonstration of French power. In some ways, uh, France is the, the top nation that comes out of the First World War. And in some ways, it's a peace conference that's going to take place in Paris. It's going to be largely directed and dominated uh, by French statesmen. Uh, and it's going to try, as it were, to address some of the old security issues that France has to address within the context of the newer security issues that have emerged out of the war. But this is against a background of conflict. You have war makers who are challenging the peacemakers at every turn. You have new states and new polities, some of which are represented at the peace conference, some of which are not. You have issues of civil war, of border wars. Poland, for example, is fighting six wars in 1919 to try and establish or expand its borders, which haven't been agreed. Uh, Yugoslavia and Italy are fighting uh, about their respective borders. Uh, you get rapacious old states, so Romania in particular. Romania had joined the war in 1916, been knocked out uh, with Russia in 1918, come back in again in September 1980 in order to try and grab what she hadn't got uh, through the treaty that she made with the Allies in 1916. The Romanian army were the only Allied forces on the ground in Eastern Europe at the end of the war, and that allowed the Romanians free reign to annex uh, what they wanted. This was in the interest of the Allies. For example, Romanian forces were instrumental in suppressing a Soviet uh, regime established in Hungary in, uh, in the middle of 1919. So what you've got, if you put it, put it in a sentence, you've got an untested new world order, and you've got it juxtaposed with the, res with the rather resistant vestiges of the old order. And this, I think, is the nub of the security problem that you have to settle at the end of the First World War. Who's going to make peace, and what sort of peace should it be? Is it a peace uh, made by the victors? Is security for the victors alone? Is it for the liberated, those populations that have emerged from the empires that have collapsed at the end of the First World War? Or should it, as far as possible, be for everyone? It is a French military victory with Allied help, but the Allies tried to dress it up as a, a collective victory. This is the obverse of their victory medal. All Allied soldiers received this medal, and it said the Great War for Civilization, or, or in French and Italian, the same words uh, for other uh, nations. So they had this sort of collective idea of what they are trying uh, to do. Uh, but in practice, uh, how that works out uh, is rather more problematic. There's idealistic options uh, presented by Wilson via the realism of the statesmen uh, that have uh, been making the war up to this point. So some people see the war as a liberal victory, uh, but there still remained an essentially nationalist and conservative uh, political tradition throughout Europe uh, that has not gone away and has to be accommodated. 
But there is a reaction to the old style of diplomacy. Wilson has promoted what he calls open diplomacy, an end to treaties of alliance, territorial arrangements, uh, a collective security system to be set up uh, through a League of Nations. Wilson turns up triumphantly in Paris in 1919 in the belief that he can then dictate peace. Uh, and he realizes pretty soon he's not going to get things all his own way, and he soon heads back to the United States and leaves it in the hands of his diplomats. Because essentially the Wilsonian agenda, the New World agenda, clashes with the old. Uh, I like uh, what Clemenceau rather cynically said, the good Lord gave us 10 commandments, we broke those. Wilson has given us 14 points, we shall see. <laughs> Our European statesmen have more traditional and rather different agendas. Uh, for France, for example, security against Germany is paramount. Germany must be kept weak and isolated. Germany is to pay for the war, to pay war reparations, and a war guilt clause will be written into the Versailles Treaty to justify this approach. Germany is to be dis disarmed and occupied. And Britain will back this attitude to a certain extent. G Britain certainly wants uh, German naval power to be broken and wants to maintain its maritime control of the sea. There are also some matters of empire to be addressed. Uh, we must remember that the great powers leaders are imperially minded. Uh, would the war consolidate or expand their empires and how would it change the security relationship between motherland and colonies? Just on the British example, the Dominions had asserted their nationhood in return for the support they'd offered to the motherland. Ireland, on the other hand, had now embarked on a process uh, increasingly bloody uh, of breaking away from uh, the British Empire. And you've got to add to that uh, the enemy uh, within the states, international uh, communism, uh, formally created uh, with the foundation of the Comintern in March 1919. This represented an internal threat, a social threat, as well as a, uh, an international threat, uh, ultimately epitomized in the uh, war between the Soviet uh, what should we call it, the Soviet Union at this point, between, between Russia and uh, Poland uh, in 1920-1921. Uh, and Bolshevism, communism as it became, was designed to have a cross-border appeal to populations, created a domestic security challenge. Uh, they promised to bring about an end of the war uh, in 1917 by essentially ending class conflict, but they were willing to fight for this objective. How do you deal with this threat? By intervention in the Civil, in the civil War in 1918-19, or later by a policy of uh, containment. Also relevant to what we're going to talk about later, how do you deal with the problem of the Middle East? Uh, in some ways, you postpone the problem by creating League of Nations mandates, but there's a democratic uh, deficit in that part of the world that is perhaps still in evidence, something uh, that will uh, be mentioned later, I guess. There's an artificial construction of states out of the provinces of the former Ottoman Empire, where borders do not fit uh, with ethnicity or uh, religion. And more generally, the principle that we have to contend with is that the, the end of old empires emancipates peoples, uh, but they don't have any particular tradition of self-government or of democracy, uh, which are the principles uh, by which they have been emancipated.
and there's a more general crisis of uh, domestic uh, government uh, alongside this as well. Partly it's a crisis of capitalism. This is a liberal capitalist war that ends in a, a, a socialist conflict, you might call it. <coughs> uh, Post-war problems of state debt, uh, currency failure, uh, business collapse, uh, prolonged economic crisis leads to hungry people. And people understand when people are hungry, uh, it leads to social unrest and to revolution has been witnessed in Russia and Austria-Hungary as the war was still going on. The other side of this is the rise of the army uh, and the fact that populations of belligerent young men have been brutalized by the war and come home and are prepared to take up arms and fight for these new causes uh, on the streets. So this liberal victory does not translate into a stable liberal society. Uh, fascism, which I can't talk about in detail, presents itself as an alternative liberalism and something more capable uh, than resisting uh, communism. So essentially, if you look at the states of uh, Europe between the wars, uh, most of these, even the victorious states, will not survive as liberal states uh, until uh, the uh, end of the 1930s. Uh, Czechoslovakia lasts until Germany uh, invades, Britain lasts, Scandinavia and Benelux, but otherwise uh, the democratic uh, basis of the peace simply isn't there. So, in some ways, the peacemakers do not achieve what they want. Uh, Foch, uh, refer, Foch was the general who led the Allied armies in 1918. He referred to the peace settlement with Germany as an armistice for 20 years. But I think there are some more general problems uh, inherent in the security uh, situation at the end of the First World War. Germany and Russia were the issues. Uh, could Bolshevism, communism be contained? Could Germany be made and kept weak? The answer to this was no, and we're all aware that uh, within 20 years it was the power vacuum in Eastern Europe uh, between Germany and Russia that was the powder, the powder keg, as it were, in which the, uh, the Second World War uh, exploded. What can we conclude uh, from this? Well, I think Lloyd George is fundamentally right about the key events uh, of the end of the war. American hegemony, uh, Russian rivalry, have defined geopolitics for the rest of the 20th and into the 21st centuries. Uh, he mentioned Baghdad and Jerusalem. Yes, they were still flashpoints in the early 21st century. So Lloyd George had certainly witnessed the birth of the modern world in 1917 and its new security challenges. These were not challenges that could be engaged with or resolved by the pre-1914 methods uh, and statesmen, although they certainly tried. Uh, 1917 is also a geopolitical fault line, perhaps, between a century of imperial Pax Britannica, as you might call it, and confrontational and unstable post-imperial world system that followed. Now, quasi-democratic Britain negotiated its way through this better than many other states. Uh, the four authoritarian outdated empires that fell in 1917 and 1918 uh, could not. 
But sooner or later, the British Empire, too, will be swept away by these new forces. Uh, it was American money, American hard power. It was communist ideology. It was nationalist self-determination. The other thing Lloyd George noted after Versailles, uh, sorry, noted after, after 1970, was the Versailles system. This was a system set up to win the war, but it was also very important in making and sustaining the peace. Future peace and security lay in cooperation. Uh, the fact that America refused to ratify the Versailles Peace Treaty and Wilsonian uh, liberalism uh, proved rather ephemeral uh, and impractical didn't mean that the principle was not there. And you will see uh, that collective security uh, doesn't go away. Lessons are learned and enacted uh, after World War II. Uh, Interestingly, the European Economic Community uh, is the end result I think of the cooperation process set up in the First World War that Lloyd George was referring to. Uh, Monet, uh, Jean Monet, the, uh, sorry, Jean Monet, the guy who uh, led the process of establishing the European economic communities, was a member of the French delegation, uh, economic delegation at the Paris Peace Conference and had been active in the Versailles uh, apparatus as a civil servant since he was the, 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 the canes of uh, France at this point. It's difficult in 20 minutes to uh, elaborate a very complicated situation. I hope I've done so. I hope I've explained the complexities, some of the problems, some of the failed solutions. Uh, there's a tendency these days in Europe to see the First World War as Europe's tragedy. Uh, but I think uh, we should include the post-war period in our analysis, and maybe this is Europe's uh, tragic comedy that follows. Thank you. Hold your thoughts and questions, and we'll turn now to Dr. Helen McCartney, who will talk to us about the commemoration of the First World War in Britain. Thank you very much. Um, in the aftermath of conflict, narratives surrounding it, justifying it, and understanding it are often simplified. The complex understandings of cause and motivation become reduced in the public sphere. Some ideas are privileged over others, and some meanings can be omitted altogether. As time passes, the meanings of commemoration, they often change. They can be influenced by the immediate concerns of those designing and participating in the commemoration and the form in which those commemorations um, are put forward. They tell us as much about how a society views its present and its future as its past. So in light of this, I want to look at the commemoration of the First World War during the centenary period, and given the topic of our discussion, examine how contemporary attitudes to British armed forces and attitudes to conflict more generally, British attitudes to conflict more generally, have influenced centennial commemoration. And I hope to persuade you that the centenary has seen a diversification of commemorative themes and messages. In the decades leading up to the centenary, British themes of First World War commemoration were fairly narrow. There was a concentration on the British experience on the Western Front, mainly from the point of view of the soldier, and the message was often one of futility. The soldier was seen as a victim of a mismanaged war. Since 2014, I think, though, that these familiar narrow futility narratives 
Although this is still dominant, there are other themes and other messages that are getting out there. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the public has a greater grasp of the complexities of the conflict. Can you speak into the microphone? Sorry. It doesn't necessarily mean that the public has a greater grasp of the complexities of the conflict. Just that it illustrates the reasons behind commemorative choices are constantly shifting, and in some cases are as complex as the conflict itself. Is that better for everyone? Fab. Okay then. So, my first theme, the diversification of theme rather than um, message. To illustrate the diversification of themes, I want to look at how refugees appeared as part of the British commemorative landscape. The First World War caused the uprooting of millions of European citizens, and yet this hasn't been a major part of commemorative activities in Britain in the years leading up to the centenary. The centenary, coinciding with numerous refugee crises for Europe, has led to a new strand of commemorative activity. Multinational companies, including Nestle, numerous media outlets, local museums and community groups, have highlighted the 250,000 Belgian refugees who made Britain their home between 1914 and 1919. Here's a good news story that can be told about the First World War. The idea that organisations and local communities welcomed refugees on a large scale, generated funds and housed people in need. That is something that actually can be celebrated about the First World War. You don't have to look at, look, look at the, the, the mass of dead there. You can take a different focus. Indeed, the First World War memorial that we can see up here to the 6,000 Belgians who worked in East Twickenham and Richmond at a Belgian-owned hand grenade factory was part-funded from Richmond Council's Civic Pride Fund, so it gives you an idea, at least the way they presented it to get the money um, uh, in, in, in the first place. These types of community projects have also involved reaching out to Belgian relatives of former refugees, honouring their forebears' courage and enterprise, while creating new international connections and an international angle to the commemoration. And this is something we often haven't seen before in British commemoration. It's often been very narrowly focused just on British experience. But by looking at refugees, you've automatically got an international angle there. In reality, the story of the refugees isn't always that rosy. Belgian refugees hadn't been remembered in many communities in the intervening years, in part due to their rather rapid repatriation by the British government at the end of the war. They were unceremoniously kicked out in, 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 in some ways. And community relations hadn't always been smooth. Yes, they'd been welcomed to a large extent in 1914, but by 1915, um, sometimes community relations were getting a bit fraught. These aspects are often, although not exclusively, glossed over by some projects. That's difficult history that doesn't necessarily fit in with their overall aims. However, I think the fact that refugees, and by extension the importance of allies, particularly the Belgians, are now seen as a legitimate theme of commemoration. The other project I want to look at in light of what we're discussing today, is the 1418 now collaboration with Damon Albarn to reunite members of the Syrian National Orchestra, helping to mark the centenary of the Sykes-Picot Agreement in 2016. 
This project drew a direct line from the British-French agreement to carve Arab provinces of the Ottoman Empire into their own spheres of influence, and drew, drew a line to the Syrian conflict today. Its theme was also refugees with a very contemporary focus. Many Syrian music musicians had been forced to leave the country as a result of the conflict, and so coming together in June 2016 was an important and symbolic moment. In interviews surrounding the event, music musicians stressed the transformative power of music, but also showed the human face as a refugee. Damon Albarn was keen to counter negative attitudes towards refugees by showcasing their talent. As one musician put it, and I quote, the media tries to show us as savages, as terrorists, but there are different sides to every country in the world. There is the musician and the graphic designer and the coffee shop worker. We also need to show the normal side. So that's one, one theme, I think, that can show how um, the First World War is being diversified, the commemoration of the First World War is being diversified by theme. But I also want to put forward the fact that the First World War is also being diversified by message. I've identified three key messages here. The first is this familiar script that sees the First World War as a futile conflict. Casualties dominate commemoration, leading to an interpretation that both the objectives of the war and the way in which it was prosecuted were pointless, with devastating consequences for families left behind or coping with those physically or psychologically wounded. But this is still very much the dominant, dominant image of the First World War in the public sphere and has been reinforced in recent years by British experience of the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. Direct comparisons were drawn over the last decade, suggesting that the lessons of the First World War had not been learned and reinforcing the British public's unease with the use of force. And this was the public image I genuinely expected to see during the centenary, and only this image. But actually, I think we can see that there have been other interpretations that have been coming to the fore. This futility narrative, I'd argue, now coexists alongside two other significant scripts. The second acknowledges the tragic character of the First World War, but sees the deaths as a blood sacrifice for future freedom. This narrative suggests more broadly that armed conflict can have a positive outcome and can contribute to peace and security. The concept of the First World War securing freedom, is, is, has, it's been argued that that's pretty nebulous and actually pretty meaningless. But nevertheless, you see that repeated a lot in, in, in commemorative, different commemorative forms, and I think it has a strong resonance for many people. For these people, the First World War has a redemptive aspect, and the vast number of deaths did and still hold meaning. And the third narrative, I'd argue, is different again. Whilst the first two revolve around moral positions on the utility of war, the third largely divorces the conflict from state goals, illuminating instead how the war illustrates more universal human values that have resonance for people today. In following this practice, those commemorating today may have been influenced by recent trends in the way in which British war dead in Afghanistan have been remembered. The notion of personality, Anthony King has argued, has become integral to definition and production. So the way in which recent conflicts have been remembered 
is probably helping to modify not only the forms of commemoration that we're seeing on the First World War, but also the messages that we're getting through. Okay, let's look at some centennial projects to see if I can illustrate some of these. Oops, there we go. So I've got three examples here. The first is the Tower of London Poppies installation. Blood swept lands and seas of red. It was inspired by a line in the will of a Derbyshire soldier who was killed in the war. The artist Paul Cummins and set designer Tom Piper created the artwork of eight, 800 and, sorry, no, I can't even say it. An awful lot of ceramic poppies in the mode of the Tower of London, with each poppy representing the death of a member of the British and Imperial forces. Funded privately and designed to mark the outbreak of the First World War, the installation grew slowly between July and November 9, 2014, and was conceived as a temporary transitory piece of art, with the poppies sold for charity at the end of the period. What I think is really important about this type of commemoration project is that the fact it offered a lot of opportunities for people to interact with it. There was the opportunity to be involved in the artwork itself in person. People could apply to be poppy planters and help to create and dismantle the visual memorial. This action by itself has been described as a piece of theatre, with over 20,000 people participating, while millions observed and often queued to look on and watch the sea of poppies grow. Those spectators also participated in creating the artwork by leaving photographs and crosses and dedications to ancestors along the moat wall, and engaged remotely through Twitter, Facebook, and an online dedications page, and a nightly roll of honour ceremony where names nominated by the public were read out. <coughs> Due to its popularity, the wave and weeping window sculptures that formed, formed part of the original display have now gone on tour around the UK, orchestrated by 1480 now. To date, they've been seen by over three million people. So this is a very significant memorial that a lot of people have had some kind of interaction with. The second project that I want to highlight is the Shrouds of the Somme project, privately funded. It staged 19,240 hand-stitched shrouded figures to represent the dead on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. It opened to the public on the 1st of July 2016 in Exeter and was reconfigured in front of Bristol Cathedral in November 2016. During the two-week exhibition, over 145,000 people viewed the exhibit in person, and the project had a popular Facebook page and a website which showcased public responses to the artwork, photographs, and video. Drone footage of the Exeter display has now been downloaded over 13 million times. And this had, a, again, this had a charitable element, contributing um, its profits to service charities. Following the success of the initial exhibitions, again, it's got, got new life. A campaign was launched to generate another display to mark the centenary of the end of the war. And that now has backing from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And the first part of the display was exhibited in the grounds of Salisbury Cathedral last week. And that's where this photograph up here is taken from. And the third and final project is entitled There But Not There, and it, again it's one designed to have national reach. The artist believes that the war dead in Britain are no longer visible to the British public. They're there on memorials, they're but they're simply names on memorials. They don't really have any meaning for the community. 
His idea was through six-foot aluminium silhouettes of soldiers, um, seen in this picture in front of the Ministry of Defence, um, or perspex figures that can be made to sit down, they were ideal for sitting in a church pew or, or in a community setting. This would bring the dead back into the community. The figures are available to buy to raise money for military charities, Backed by senior retired military figures with inspiring wounded military patrons, the project has recently received a substantial cash boost from the government. So there are the three projects. What can they tell us then about centennial commemoration? If we look at these images, we can see that all the projects draw a direct link between the UK Armed Forces and the British Army of the First World War. And what I want to argue is that um, this takes various different forms. You have the inspiration of the projects in the first place, you have the military's participation in their creation, and you have the military being beneficiaries in the form of um, charitable donations to, to, to military charities. I want to have a look at these three um, themes in, in a bit more detail. So for some, contemporary conflict inspired their work in the first place. Rob Hurd, the artist responsible for the shrouds, began by thinking about the consequences of contemporary wars for soldiers during his own recovery from injury. While his project has reflected all three public scripts about the war, Hurd himself, I think, linked through identifying with values rather than a moral stance on the war. He spoke of the bravery and tenacity of contemporary soldiers battling back after worse injuries than his own. But he also spoke of the bravery and tenacity of First World War soldiers, explaining that stitching the shroud sometimes 15 hours a day, despite continuous pain in his hands, provided him with a focus which allowed himself to do something extraordinary in the wake of his own severe injury. So in sharing the same value of tenacity, both with the soldiers he was commemorating and the veterans for, um, which benefited from, 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 from the money, he was able to make a connection between himself and two different um, communities. We can also see that the UK Armed Forces are participating very visibly in the commemorations. Look at those photographs. Here the imagery is connecting the contemporary soldier very much to um, the dead of the First World War in particular, because the, both the shrouds and the poppies represent the dead. I think that is actually really quite striking. Service personnel and their families participated both by planting poppies and laying out shrouds, and, my, and by making dedications, often to those serving now as well as in the past. Indeed, I think this is a really interesting aspect of these projects, that individuals have used them to mark more recent wars as well as the First World War. The link between today and the First World War was usually made with reference to that redemptive, that second interpretation of the war, the idea that the war has a purpose and the war had a meaning. And the quote from Sergeant Christopher O'Brien, who was laying out the shrouds a week ago, illustrates this quite well. He spoke about, and I quote, soldiers who lost their lives for the greater good so we could have the life we've got today. And he linked this to remembering friends that he had personally lost on military operations. 
Similar dedications were made on the online Tower of London dedications page for the poppies and on reflections cards collected in Liverpool in 2015 when the poppies were on tour. But it's not just the serving soldiers who participated. Military charities too have connected with projects through directing them, enabling them, and becoming beneficiaries of that commemoration. And again, they've usually subscribed to that second theme, that redemptive interpretation. So for example, the 2014 British Legion poppy appeal single was filmed amidst the ceramic poppies in the Tower of London moat. And Joss Stone commented that the song chosen, a cover of Eric Bogle's Greenfields of France, stood for, and I quote, the peace and sacrifice made by so many. She overtly linked the sacrifice of First World War soldiers with those serving in 2014. Although ironically, through the use of an anti-war song with the more challenging uh, verses omitted. Now charities are treading a really fine line in interpretation here. Soldiers laying out shrouds or planting poppies can be interpreted in lots of different ways. They don't have control over how the public is going to interpret this. The link can just as easily reinforce the victim image of the soldier and the futility of war um, as, as seeing death and injury as having some kind of worth. And this was certainly demonstrated in the pe people's online responses to the poppies. You see both, um, both ideas there in, in online responses. Military charities aren't blind to this conundrum. There's a widespread concern that the contemporary portrayal of the soldier as a victim of recent wars is impacting negatively on the armed forces. And perhaps this explains the explicit mission of there, but not there, to educate the public on the sacrifices made then and now, as well as healing hidden wounds. So they haven't taken this redemptive interpretation for granted. They realize that they are playing a part and their, their interpretation will be but one that is made. I hope I've persuaded you that British public narratives about the First World War that have emerged from these projects are more diverse than those we've seen over the last decades. I still think the futility script's dominant, and we're not at the end of the commemorations, and I haven't had time to number crunch and, and look at all the projects that are out there. But I think we can still see that there are more, more diverse, even if they're not dominant, messages that are coming out of this centenary. And that, I think, is very encouraging um, for the future commemoration. Thank you very much. That concludes this event recording. Remember, for more news and information on upcoming events, please visit our website at kcl.ac.uk slash sspp slash departments slash war studies. Thank you for listening. <laughs>